Hi, welcome to the Wine Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Craig. The Wine Beat is an exploration of some of the world's greatest wine regions, often a little bit off the beaten path. Today, we're going to the southern end of the Okanagan Valley in British Columbia, Canada. We're visiting with Chris Tolley of Moon Cursor Vineyards. In my experience, very few winemaker interviews can be published as a podcast completely unedited right out of the box, but Chris Tolley's interview is a little bit different. He's so genuine, he's so gregarious, uh, and he's super knowledgeable uh, all at the same time, and, and so he gives us these great insights into the mind of a passionate winemaker, but it all just flows. Um, there's a great overview of the whole wine region from the perspective of one of its biggest, best innovators. Um, it, it's an intriguing exploration of, of how wine varieties adapt to a region. That's where Chris takes us in, in, in a good part of this interview is how wine varieties have adapted to BC and how they express themselves here. We're going to go down to Soyuz, just, just on the U.S. border in BC's fascinating hot part of our cool climate winemaking region. Come on along, this is great, but be prepared. Chris loves to talk about wine, and this episode runs to, the overall interview runs to 1 hour 45, so I've broken it into two installments. This is the first installment. Come on along. This is great. Let's go. Boom. I'm here with Chris Tolley at uh, Moon Cursor Vineyards in Asoyuz, just outside of Asoyuz in southern BC, southern Okanagan Valley. Moon Cursor Vineyards is a really interesting winery. They've developed a, a really powerful brand and personality for their wines. Uh, but they also collect awards faster than smugglers collect wanted posters <laughs> or or Donald Trump collects lawsuits. Yes, yes. Yeah. But they, they are highly awarded in, in, uh, in, in wine, and um, they also produce an astounding range of varietals. So I'm, I'm here with Chris, and he's going to tell us about, about Moon Cursor. Chris, uh, thanks for joining me on The Wine Beat. Well, thanks for having us, son. It's a pleasure. Well, tell me all about uh, about your winery and your and, and how you uh, how you developed Moon Cursor. Okay, um, so given your introduction, we're here in the South Okanagan, uh, BC uh, interior, about four hours uh, straight east of, of Vancouver. We're also very close to the border. Um, we're actually about a, a mile from the border, um, and uh, we're on the east side of a lake which sort of splits uh, the town of Asuas into east and west um, on on fairly decent slope. Uh, so the vineyards have good aspect and, and that sort of thing, and we have a moderating effect from the lake. Um, that's sort of our area. And our brand is Moon Cursor, which is um, a, I guess I'd say, euphemism for smuggler. Uh, I wouldn't say synonym, but if Moon Cursor, the winery, wasn't around and you Googled Moon Cursor, it would say smuggler. Um, so uh, the story behind why it's, why it's a, a synonym is because um, people used to smuggle um, back in the old days at night across the border, whatever border it was, uh, um, and... Uh, they didn't like it when there was a full moon because you could you could basically see it would expose uh, their movements. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, they'd smuggle in the new moon, that, which is the no moon. Um, so when it was pitch black and, and they and people started calling them moon cursors because they figured they didn't like the moon. Um, so that's where the name comes from. And then um, why that name is appropriate for a winery in Asoyas is because um, we had a gold mine which so we can see um, looking out the window um, here at our the 
on the spot where we yeah, we have this tremendous view down over the lake and into the mountains on the other side. Yeah, and in the mountains, there's a little uh, you can kind of see a little red spot uh, over there, and there's a mine there. Yeah, and they called it the dividend, and it ran, I think, for five years, twenty four seven, and they pulled a lot of gold out of there, and they attracted a lot of American prospectors who also pulled out gold out of there, but. Uh, when they went back to the states, they didn't want to um, pay the duty. Pay the duties. It's a, a kind of funny story because the, the it's American prospectors going back into the U.S. And as if if you've ever traveled, you know, you don't meet Canadian customs officers when you go back into the U.S. If you were a U.S. citizen, like when I come back to Can- Canada, I don't meet the U.S. guys. I meet Canadian guys. Right. Yeah. So, but I guess at that time. Anything leaving Canada, they wanted tax on, so the Canadians would get involved. And then, of course, the miners didn't want to pay anything, and there was always scuffles. What uh, years would that have been? In the 20s, I believe. Uh, there's actually quite a bit of mining throughout this area. Like, there's Headley, uh, there's big copper mines there, there's silver mines out going the other way near Bridesville. So it was all about mining. Yeah. It was all it, about tr- the transfer of, uh, of the gold. Of the, the gold was where they wanted to take it back. It across. wasn't a prohibition thing at all. No. No, no. They, but you know, and so Mooncursor is a, a, a synonym for smuggler in any sense. It's just a synonym for smuggler. Gotcha. Um, the the reason it's appropriated in in with with respect to our winery, pardon me, is because um, a lot of it happened here, and it still happens in the soy. So it's smuggling anyway, but it's not so romantic. It's <laughs> moving uh, cigarettes or yeah, something. Yeah, it's something like that. They, <laughs> The RCMP does a little bit of a, um, uh, not an article, but they do a little section in the local paper of what, what happened during the past two weeks. I think they publish it every fortnight. So it's like a smuggler's corner in the... Uh... Well, it pretty much the RCMP, it ends up being a lot of incidents at the border, and so it ends up being your smuggler's journal. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I heard recently... What was they caught smuggling? Uh, I heard it on NPR, uh, National Public Radio from the States, because we're very close to the States being on the border here. I heard that they actually caught uh, one uh, a company, and it was called like Smuggler's Notch or something like or something like that, and the guy actually got caught smuggling. Smuggling. So, yeah, uh, kind of funny. But anyway, (laughs) uh, that's the. That's where the name comes from, and then the bottle, which which has very um, yeah, we, and we'll put uh, some pictures up on the website oh, okay. with the with show notes, and so there'll be pictures of the bottle and and some of the stuff from the winery, so people can see the the, the branding and the um, and the uh, logo and the uh, and the that, graphics that, that, that back yeah, the story. and they're quite um, you know they're they're not uh, shrinking. Violets, they're they're quite. It's it's a quite expressive label, and 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 so when you look at it, it the question comes up: Well, what's that all about? I guess, and and uh, it's supposed to portray the smuggling yeah. uh, using animal characters, um, um, like with you know the the traditional in this case gold smuggling, so the traditional mule with a pickaxe, um, and, and and those sort of characters that would, and then it's also integrated with the the local locality here which is the desert and so there's a i can just looking at the bottle here i see coyote and and there's um um you know somebody leading a, a pack mule and and uh the mule deer and, and things and like that owl carrying the yeah. lantern right oh, so yeah there's the owl and and there's even a bat there's a bat avery here in the soyos uh it's kind of interesting and and so 
they're great labels, and when you look at them, you 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 end up trying to decipher what the story is. You know what's going on exactly, and what are each yeah. of the characters doing? It's good. So, yeah, and it's you know once you see it, you don't forget it. So, and that was a bit of a problem. We used to be a winery called Twisted Tree, and then yeah. we rebranded. And Twisted Tree was the name that my wife and I came up with. Uh, my wife Vita, um, and I came up with. Um, we basically just came up with the name out of nowhere and we're like, let's just use that name and had no, with, with no regard to marketing or anything. We're just more wine geeks at the time. Just wanted to make some wine and sell some wine and enjoy the wine life. And so we just came up with a name and put it. It's also a creative name, Twisted Trees. Yeah. It it sort of was for the old, um, cherry trees that, that grew here, they were okay, they yeah. prune them into these twisted things. Uh, they don't exist anymore because now they have high density and they use rootstocks to dwarf the trees and, and such. Uh, but um, the label, you could forget the label fairly easily, and so we re- rebranded into Moon Cursor. And I think it's done really well, right? I mean, I think that that, the, that personality for the winery has, I, I assume, has done very well because it, it it's, it's it's popular, it's well known, and it's. Uh, it has done really well. It's funny. Our agent was just talking about it. He says, you know, 60% of the people really like the branding and about 30% of the people, it, it doesn't matter. They're just after a good wine and they're right. like, oh yeah, it's, it's nice. And then 10% of the people really dislike it. So the more, the more out, you know, the more you go towards the periphery, I guess, the more you get people who like what you're doing, but you also attract people who, you know, dislike it. In the same proportion as the people who do like it, so um, as a winemaker, it's got to be a bit of a. You must be maybe a little bit conflicted in that respect because, you know, I don't mind saying the wine speaks for itself, and you, you, we're we're going to get a chance to talk about the wine itself. But you know, we so far we've talked a whole bunch about the 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 brand and the logo and the image, uh, but but then you you know you're trying to get the wines to speak as well, right? I mean, it's not about picking an image; it's about the the wine. Yeah, and that's uh, that's what Twisted Tree was, was it was just a secondary thought because it was all about the wine. And it's still all about the wine, but the wine, for me, especially as a, as the winemaker, or as I said, now the senior winemaker, we now have a winemaker, but um, it, it, what I'm concentrating on is the wine and the flavor profile, and that's the way I see our winery. I see it through those things. It, and also when I look at wineries, I don't really think of what their brand represents. I say, well, we're going to Italy and who are we going to visit? And we're going to visit, uh, well, actually I'll throw out, I'll say we're going to visit Vietti. And what appears in my mind is, you know, their label. And I sort of have some association with the, I associate things with the winery that probably aren't true just based on their label. But what I, when when I think about it some more and I think about why I want to visit there, it's about their varietals and their style and, and what they're doing. And, and, and those are the things that I really, you know, I want people to think of when they think of moon cursors, think of the wines, because I think that is, that is the product we're selling. And that's the way we should be evaluated. But the world is very visual. So, you know, we have a brand and an interesting story on the, on the label. And it's sort of, you know, our label is place oriented. So it reminds people where we are and, 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 you know, sort of, so there is an association with the valley and the desert on the label and our history. So, uh, 
So I, I like that f feature too. But um, as you know, we have many varietals here. We have 13 SKUs, as it were. So there's 13 different labels. Uh, so 13 different wines. Uh, but some of the wines are multiple varietals, like they're blends. So mm -hmm. we have more varietals than than labels. We have 13 labels. So. And I think, I uh, just to say it, I think Moon Cursor probably more than any other winery in the Okanagan Valley is known for the, um, you know, uh, the, the, the adventurous nature of trying different varietals. So there, there are some other wineries doing other varietals, and there are wineries doing Spanish varietals and Italian varietals, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But maybe Moon Cursor more than others has, uh, has a range. Uh, yeah, well, that was sort of our... Uh, when we started, that's sort of what we Was that ended really up... part of what you were trying to achieve at the beginning? Was that in, the, in your minds at the beginning? Was this... That's a good question. I, I don't really know. I don't, you know, it's, we started in 2003, 2003, starting this and, and, you know, looking at property. I don't know if we actually had an idea of exactly what we wanted to do other than start growing grapes and make wine. I, like I, I, it wasn't clear then. And then when we started, when we actually had a property, uh, my wife really likes Riesling. And so we, and we looked throughout the valley at different properties, and we picked one in the Soyuz. We picked a really nice one. There was actually a pair of properties we bought together, and, it, and they were really nice. And and uh, and in a Soyuz, and which I don't know, I'd say pre, pre, uh, precluded uh, Riesling. Yeah, right. But uh, you know, now there's some people planting everything everywhere, but I, I would still stick by that. So, which was disappointing my wife. So, like, I think when she imagined what Moon Cursor would be or what our winery would be, it would involve Riesling in some manner. Riesling was going to uh, be a big part. Yeah, and and, and that we don't do Riesling at all. We did our first year. We bought some Riesling from up north. Mm. It wasn't our terroir, but it was just our drive to do Riesling, uh, and and we did for a couple of years. Nice Riesling, um, but it wasn't. From our vineyards, it was purchased fruit, and, and so it kind of died out. Uh, but um, when we planted here, we planted, the, when I say here, we're, we're sitting at the winery, and we're sitting in the middle of, of the vineyard at the winery, which is five acres, um, and it has six different varietals on it. Um, in five acres. In five acres, yeah. Right. They're all three-quarter and, you know, and 80, eight-tenths of a, an acre. Um but they were sort of like spice rack varietals um, for what we were going to purchase. And so Merlot was very prolific in the valley. And yeah. um, we're like, okay, well, we're not going to plant Merlot because we can always buy Merlot if we want Merlot. Right, okay. uh, let's plant things that we can't acquire, uh, you know, just through purchase. So we planted um, Tanat, Tempranillo, Carmenere, Viognier, Roussin, and Marsan. The Viognier we could have maybe bought. Um, we had to get it all from the States because there's no cuttings here. Um, those were firsts. I, I'm not absolutely sure, but I'm pretty sure they were firsts for the Valley when we when we got them from University of California, Davis. They, their foundation plant services progression block and where you can import. You can import plants because we have a close relationship with the United States. And in fact, because of the, where they pretty much the only country uh, they're the only country we actually border by by land. Um, um, our quarantine program and all that is fairly fairly light. 
um, so you can bring up plants fairly easily from Italy. They don't know, they want to inspect them and they want to quarantine them for a couple of years. And so, so we brought them up right. from California and we planted them. We had success with them. They were well researched, like Tanat and Tempranillo and uh, Carbonara were well researched varieties. We figured, okay, well, you know, what's their cold resistance and when do they ripen in other countries and, you know, what's the likelihood we're going to have some good fruit and, 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 uh, and we planted them, but some of the, the academic kind of um, adventure um, turned out to be a failure because I wanted to blend Tanat and Tempranillo. His Tanat is very high in tannin, very high in acid, very high in alcohol, very high in flavor. And Tempranillo is more of a, you know, sort of earthy kind of grape, not yep. a lot of fruit, so it matched well with Tanat. It has very low, has low alcohol, I'll say. Um, and low acidity. So these, they were, you know, mathematically well suited for yeah. one another. Had you tried that blend oh, yeah, somewhere it doesn't, else? Doesn't blend very well. We, yeah, when we did Tanat and Tempranillo, we tried a blend, like a not a like a, a blend afterwards. We made the two wines and then. But tried. no, you hadn't tried a commercial blend of that no. somewhere before. This was your. No, it was just my our idea. We we're just like, well, Tempranillo should grow here. It's really hot in the soil. Yeah. Um, that was sort of a very regional thing to think because having not been to Spain, I didn't realize how hot hot can be. We get hot here. We get 46 degrees centigrade um, in the summer some days, and we don't have a long um, uh, hot, you know, hot long period. It, yeah, it tapers off on both ends pretty yeah, quickly. Yeah. So um, so we got a very different Tempranillo than you know some of the Rioja and stuff, but a variety correct Tempranillo, just something distinct to the valley, and uh, and it was sort of like we picked Tempranillo because of on its own merits, and we picked Tanat on its own merits, and it was just serendipitous that it, that we could think, oh, they just blend well together too, and and everything will be great. Um, on they paper, don't, on they, paper. They, yeah, on paper, they don't blend very well, they, and that's wine blending, isn't it? I mean. I, from my understanding, some things just work magically together, and then sometimes they just don't. Some things are um, some things are absolute truths, and some things in the wine business are completely, you know, let, urban myth or whatever. They, you know, there's some things that I that I read and I just I'm like that. That's I don't think that's true. And then there's some things that are like that just there are uh, like uh, when I'm thinking American oak on Pinot Noir. Like people tell you, well, you know, winemakers tell you, you know, no, it's not going to work very well. And so we tried a barrel just, uh, you know, and yeah, no, it just it doesn't, it, work. It, it doesn't work at all. <laughs> and then work. once you taste it, you kind of look at it and you think, yeah, there's no way this could work. Like it just, it's just, <laughs> it's you know, you know, you wonder like somebody came up with black pepper and strawberries, right? And, yeah. and it's a, it doesn't sound like it's going to work and it works. And you're kind of hoping for that, maybe, you know, oh, maybe the guy didn't have the right clone of Pinot Noir, or maybe he didn't have the right American barrel. Or, but then when you taste it, you, you kind of, it's an enlightening experience, and you really realize, yeah, this, is, this yeah. isn't going to work. But then when you hear um, something like, oh, Viognier in Syrah, and you think, and they say, oh, you know, it's going to be for color, and it's going to be co-pigmentation, meaning that there's certain chemicals in the Viognier that, help stabilize color in Pinot Noir, and uh, sorry, in Syrah, and then you realize, well... Just in so case there are people who, who, who don't know this, but Viognier being a white, yes. and, and 
Syrah being red. Yeah, and so the first idea is co-pigmentation, and you're kind of like, well, uh, you know, keeping the pigments in, in the red, um, you're thinking, well, how would I benefit by adding a white? And then you do, you know, you're digging more into the story, and you hear, oh, they got some, you know, cafeteric acid, which helps stabilize the color and the paint. And then you think, well, so but Syrah doesn't even have a color problem and they don't even ripen at the same time. And like, well, there's so many things wrong with this story that, you know, <laughs> that now on the other hand, um, some of the new world winemakers just think, oh, there's a sort of a floral component to Viognier that'll add to the Syrah. That I can buy, right? Like, are you like, well, okay. The, the Rhone winemakers who were blaming yeah. Viognier yeah. and Syrah <laughs> hundreds of years ago did not know that there might be a, uh, chemical reason yeah. right i mean they just worked well together somehow and and well i have a feeling that actually i don't this isn't i i this i shouldn't say i have a feeling i when we did our our university education in new zealand uh, in winemaking we met a lot of people um some who had worked in the rhone especially some kiwis because there's a number of, of new zealanders in the program and one of them a fairly enlightened guy uh he said, oh, what I believe is they just had a bunch of Viognier in with the Syrah. And they're like, what do you want to do with this Viognier? And the winemaker was like, I don't know. Let's just throw it in. Like, yeah. You know, it can't hurt. It's it's a nice varietal as well. And, you know, pretty pleased with the result. And there you go. And that, so do I believe, I don't know what to believe in this, you know, this story. You know, the story is now... Lost in the mists of time. Yeah, I mean, it started. And, that, and why somebody does it now is an entirely... Um, um, entirely um, modern story, right? Um, it's just about what works now. It's not about... Uh, I don't know if anybody was ever worried about color or... Uh, or... If, you know, or, or if it was their vineyards. But certainly there's, there's proponents of, like... I've, you know, I tasted my Syrah without the Viognier. I tasted it with, with the Viognier, and I like it better with the Viognier, and that's why it's being done. I, I can buy that. But there's a lot of stories in the wine business where you kind of like, eh, I don't know. And then there's a lot of ones where you, having the benefit of owning a winery, you're like, yeah, no, you, you can't do that. But <laughs> some of it is both, which makes, you know, even makes the story even more confusing because in, in, in California, Syrah is a very, very late variety. Um, and so you're like, oh my God. Oh, sorry, pardon me. It's a very early, early. variety. Early variety. Yeah. Yes. And uh, Which is why it works reasonably well up here in the Okanagan, right? But it's, a, even, it's one of the later varieties. The and it actually gets switched with some of the varieties. So when you read about like, oh, Syrah is really early, you're like, oh, great. That's going to work well for us because, you know, our heat drops off fast and we could get frosted or something like that. Or we might not have enough heat to ripen it because when the heat drops off. So you're like, oh, yeah, it's going to be early. And then you get it here and it's one of the later varieties. And in fact, it actually switches the ripening with, you know, California has later varieties like, um, well, I... I can't remember one, but they pick it after Syrah because Syrah down there is early. Mm-hmm. And it, it's reversed here. We, we always pick it first yep. and then Syrah later. So sometimes this, the stories where you, think, where you think, oh, I don't believe that. Well, it's actually true, but it's true only locally. And, you know, or it's true, true regionally, but it's not true globally. So 
anyway, I might be rambling a bit now, but some the wine business is, you know, you never know what's going to happen, kind of. That's the story I'm getting to, I guess, in the end, is you never know what these varieties are going to do. You never know what you're going to get until you've planted them. And when we arrived here, nobody had done that. They, they, you know, they were still working, or we were still working, I should say, on establishing vinifera in the valley. So we'd have success with Merlot. You know, we had some some global acclaim for Pinot Gris, and you know, and nobody was thinking Tanat. They were were thinking, okay, well, how do we lever what we got into something else? Whereas I had just come from New Zealand, and they call the vine there a monoculture in, in New Zealand because they got, you know, they, they've had a lot of success in the wine business and now yeah. they got vines everywhere. Yeah. Um, and then they almost, almost mono varietal, like the Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc, Blanc is yeah. just so popular. Massive it's, of yeah. Blanc, right? that, that's all you talk about. And then after that, we went to Australia for a while and it was just dominated by, by uh, you know, Syrah and Cab Sauv. Yeah. And everybody went with Syrah and caps off, Syrah and caps off. And then you go to one real little region where, you know, like the Hunter Valley or something, and it'd be dominated by Semyon or something like that. So when we came here, after all the education and, and after being away, kind of like, okay, well, we're not going to get trapped in that Merlot Pinot Gris thing like we saw over there. We, I want to, or Bita and I wanted to look at, okay, what, what else can we do? What? What could be interesting? Because that's you're really pushing the envelope. Uh, it got to be. Uh, it got to be not, not habitual. Just because the wine industry here was relatively young still at that stage, but also because you went way outside of the bounds. <laughs> way, yeah, we way sort off of the ranch in terms of the varieties. <laughs> yeah, it. I. I. There was a. I guess it got. Tanat. Yeah, Tanat was one of the first ones because I tasted Tanat, and uh, you know. La, Minus the tannins, they were very exciting wines. People and still haven't heard of Tanat. I mean, it, which is we're, we're drinking it here. Like I, I find it one of the most exciting. We're brands. having your Dead of Night. Yes, yeah, 2016. Yeah, which is a blend of Syrah and Tanat, fifty-fifty. Um, there's a good chunk of oak on this. About a third of it uh, was in new new barrels, new barriques, um, for about a year. Um, so, but it's it's got an, uh, an oak component for sure, but it's very spicy. Yes. And uh, big, the, the tannin is helping to make it big in, in terms of structure with tannins and stuff, but it's very drinkable. Yeah, it's... it's 2016, it's, and it's easy to drink. I mean, it's, For tannin, it's, it's, you'd, you'd think, oh, wow, you're drinking a lot of tannin, but uh, the, the tannin grown in the valley, at least on our property, on this on this uh, sand hill, is, is, is not that tannic and, and blended with Syrah. It, it's... 2016 is a, a good, it's a drinking vintage, I guess. Yeah, very classy wine. Um, big but uh, elegant and uh, lots of character. This one, yeah, it's it's one where we stumbled. I guess we weren't too worried about the final blend of you know, we were just wanted to plant varieties that were going to be very, you know, that were going to be world class basically here. Um, and we'd had a couple, we had a couple, we planted, um, Corvino Veronese, uh, and that didn't work out. It just, it just didn't like the Okanagan for lack of a more 
technical description. I'm just going to leave it at that. It just didn't work out. Never adapted. Uh, yeah, and and exploring why is sort of. But you do another Italian. We do dolcetto. Dolcetto. That was well researched. Yeah, we went over to Italy, and drank a lot of dolcetto and arnaise. Yeah, it was horrible work. And you do arnaise, <laughs> which is a, yeah. the, I drink that stuff by the case. It's such, such a good yeah. white. Yeah, it's a, it's a. But again, a wine that I mean, a variety that to this day not, not many that people are familiar even, with arnaise. Yeah, it perplexes me why we actually, you know, we went over there and it's an heirloom variety in Italy that they resurrected from near extinction um you know and it was it was um a couple of the major wineries that decided they wanted to do it and and even in italy it's not well known and then why we planted it i'm not sure but we do have a sort of vino curious uh, market here uh bc is you know they they're happy that um you know the the consumer is happy that our, the local producers are producing you know nice wines from Merlot and, and Pinot Gris, but like Chris and Peter Tolley, they're also like, well, you know, where, where's the, the variation? Where's the, in, you know, interesting, I want to try this, and I want to hear a new story, and I want to try a new variety. Not just for the sake of trying a new variety. Like, I, I'm, I'm sure they look at it and they say, I want a nice wine, but I want to try something different, or yeah. sort of, as I say, like, curious about, about what can be done. And for some these aren't you know for some people they're kind of like oh they're interesting alternative varieties but you go to spain and tempranillo is not an alternative variety it's the variety so it depends where you are it's like the most planted you know i, I think grenache is the most planted. but anyway there's a lot yeah. you know it's not for here it's kind of like uh, an alternative sort of curious variety but that's and it that's, does get grown in a lot of countries in the world i believe tempranillo yeah. right and across europe and also in australia and california yeah <clears throat> yeah it's traveled well and then it's also you know like sangiovese here would be a curious variety to plant um and it would be considered an alternative variety but certainly in italy you say sangiovese it's it's the you know the variety Arnais, I'll give you. That's an alternative variety. You can't, <laughs> no matter how you look at that, yeah. it's alternative. Um, Dolcetto uh, is, you know, it's uh, I can see it. But Dolcetto is a very nice variety for the Okanagan because um, it, it 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 suits the climate very well. It grows well on sand. It, it it doesn't like to be grafted. It tends to drop its fruit when it's grafted. Um, but we don't have a problem with uh, that here because we don't graft. At least the Dolcetto is, and some of our vines are, but not a lot of them, because the phylloxera, which is a, a, a louse that lives in the soil, likes to eat the roots of, uh, of vinifera plants, so basically all the wine plants. And then if you graft onto an American hybrid, so, you know, they're, they're specialized one, but, you know, if you took the bottom of a Sultana grape, uh, you know, a North American grape, and then grafted it onto Cab Sauv, then... You have resistant roots. I guess the, the louse still eats the roots, but not in doesn't kill the plant. Yeah, it's so the the roots tolerate the. So, but that particular louse doesn't move well in sand, so it it it, it needs a finer texture soil to be able to move, and and uh, so you don't get it in so sand. So in sandy soils, you tend not to need to graft. Yes. Okay. You still have nematodes, which is another bug that lives in the soil that. It yep. feeds off the roots, and you still have problems there. 
but the the main one that would cause you to graft is is doesn't exist yeah. well it does it, i sh- should say you know it, it never gets to be a, a large pressure of phylloxera on your vines so you can just not graft at all which we did with the dolcetto so then you don't have problems with the f- dropping of fruit um and then it it grows well in sand it it like it it ripens in in our ripening period it, it's just very well suited for this area uh and then it, it produces a really nice wine too which is the ultimate test i mean none of it all that like i said before all the theoretical academic mumbo jumbo if you will or not mumbo jumbo but that 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 sort of analysis you know gives you a better chance of succeeding than you know if you do it right but in the end it's going to be the wine when the you taste the wine you there's your success or failure right there irrespective of all the all the planning you yeah. know and, and that was sort of Corvina like that's my dad's um, that area where it grows this is where my dad's family is from and he's like oh you know they have winters there too and it gets cold and you know they do really nice wines and looked at it and yeah okay it, you know could do here and it just it just doesn't it's you know and, and that's the final test is you taste the wine and you're like okay that's not working out you're telling a pretty good story about this being a, almost a pragmatic kind of set of decisions about picking these varieties, but you're obviously mavericks, right? I mean, you've got Carmenere, which is Chile's signature wine, maybe. Yes. Tempranillo, yeah. Spain. You've got Tanat, which is this, you know from France, I think, but very, you know, yeah. not yeah. particularly well known. Dolcetto, Arnais. Uh, what else have you got? You've got yeah, we, we have... Uh, so we have most we have all the Bordeaux varieties. So Carmenere, as you mentioned, which is obscure but uh, still a Bordeaux variety, and then Petit Bordeaux, uh, right? Yeah, and and Malbec, and you know the uh, we have plantings now both caps, cap front, cap soft, and um, so got some of the usual suspects. So yeah, some of them, but uh, you know, and uh, like even Viognier, Roussan, Marsan, everybody's like, okay, I got the first one. What, what what's the other two again? You know, like Roussan and Marsan, <laughs> which. I agree. Like they're not, but they really make the the Viognier better. Unless unless you want a really sort of off, not opulent, but you know, very perfumey, very uh, short lived type of wine. Uh, short lived in terms of laying the, the wine down. You know, mm-hmm. Viognier lasts a few years, but it's very pretty. And um, but if if you want a little more structure to it and a little more, uh, you know, ageability, then the Roussan and Marsan are quite nice to blend into it. And that's sort of what we imagined. And and we put a little bit of faith in these varieties exist and are popular in some regions because they produce nice wines that people will drink. And then you put some faith in the BC wine drinker that they're not, you know, that they're, well, not even faith in the, you put a little faith in that every wine consumer sort of has the, you know, that sort of broad palette and that they'll enjoy these things. Now, that being said, I don't think we'd make 2,000 cases of, of RNAs. You know, it, it, it's nice, you know, you make 300 cases of it and there's 300 people out there that are interested in that and that buy the wine. But, um, you know, it is, it's not a mainstream variety, so you're not going to get a mainstream type of purchasing power from your consumer, you know. It's, uh, um, 
Did but you? that's okay because we're you know we're, our main one is our main varieties are Syrah, um, a Bordeaux blend um, of mainly Cab and Cab Franc and Malbec, and then um, uh, Afraid of the Dark, which is a Viognier Roussin Marsan, which are mainstream enough that you can sell them in large quantity, um, and then the Arnaise is, is 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 a bit of you know for the interested, I guess you know. Did you get some pushback at the beginning from? The people that you wanted to market your wines and that sort of stuff in terms of the varieties you were picking, or, or well, we started. Um, or is the valley's mind open enough that they? They, I think they only when we started they only cared about good because uh, Canadian wine had been very bad, and we used hybrids and yeah. um, made some poor wines, and then the wine business, the wine, the wine business. En masse, like uh, uh, the BC wine business was just learning. So yeah. we had people making mistakes and, you know, stuff you, you can't get away with in a mature um, in environment where, you know, nobody makes any mistakes because everybody's in the, been in the business for 100 years and, and they got everything set. Uh, here, people were, you know, maybe growing the wrong thing, not vinifying it properly. They didn't have the equipment. There's none of the, you know, it was hard to get equipment, hard to get. Um, everything you'd think of, uh, of associated with a young wine business. Um, so um, when you're buying BC wine, what your criteria was is, I want something good uh, at first, um, back in you know the late 90s. And so I don't think people really shied away from Tempranillo. They were just like, I don't know, I don't... You know, it's interesting. Okay. They were varietal focused. They, yeah, they, they just were at like at least uh, in the Canadian market. They were uh, they were just happy that there was some quality starting yeah. to happen. Yeah, and I, you know, we started to you know, there's some celebration of Bac au Noir even to this day, where it's it's internationally known variety, not well known, but and we there's people here that do it very well, um, and that. I guess that was, you know, a major success, and and when the when the industry was starting out too, majorly popular because it was good wine. Like even though it was made with, you know, not with a vinifera vine, it was made really well and 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 uh, was a, a nice wine to drink. Um, and then uh, sort of as we went, uh, people like there was sort of popularity with different varieties in the valley, so. You know, Pinot Gris started getting international attention, and and so it, I guess, to answer your question directly, it did become a little more difficult to sell alternative varieties. That being said, there, you know, we always had a big enough wine market that there were people interested in the alternative varieties. Um, us in planting them, planting it, them, and you know, harvesting and making the wine, and from the sommelier's point of view, you know seeing what the wine was like and seeing what BC could do in, in the climate. Because it, it's it's not a mathematical thing. It's, as I said, you just taste the wine at the end. And, you know, and, and that's your answer. So irrespective of what you thought of the old world and, you know, how it compares to BC, you know, you were going to get a good, a fairly good shake from a lot of the, the BC uh, consumers because it, all that matters in the end is if it's a good wine or not. Um, that that being said, um, 
some wines just sell well better than others. Just the Carmen Air, which I think has as much cachet as, you know, um, as say Dolcetto, you know, like they're not really well, not well known, known and they're both international varieties and have a name that sort of gives you that feeling. Carmen Air is wildly popular and, and, uh, and Dolcetto not so much. And Carmen Air is... Carmen Air is wildly popular. Yeah, we sell Carmen Air. Like, people really, really like Carmen Air. And there's never a question about it, which is, which is interesting. Because I always think... It's interesting to me. It's interesting to yeah, me. Yeah, everybody, like not everybody, but uh, a large portion of people who come in the tasting room know what Carmen Air is and know we make a Carmen Air. And, and, yeah. and the Dolcetto is it's just... You have a neighbor, Larry Anacella. It's not a neighbor exactly, but very close. Yeah. They make a good Carmen Air as well. So it, it suits yeah. this valley. Yeah, it, it does really well in the valley. It's not anything like the Chilean version, mm -hmm. which I thought would have been another uh, hurdle. But that didn't seem to matter either. It's got uh, its own expression. Yeah, and but it also has a very accepted own expression. Whereas Dolcetto, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just outright wrong about it to start off with. But I would have figured a lot of people would know Dolcetto and it would sort of be in, on par with Carmenere, but it just, it just isn't. Um, um, just from knowledge and Tempranillo, which like, you know, Tempranillo is certainly to the international wine drinker, much more known than either Dolcetto or Carmenere, but nobody seems to know what that is here. Now, in, in terms of your average wine consumer, they're just, they're just not, you know, that it's just something that hasn't gotten to them for some reason that, that, uh, that this is a, widely planted grape and uh, people really like it and you can make nice wines out of it and, but Tempranillo also has a problem is that there are a lot of cheap Tempranillo arrives from Spain into this market right so that becomes difficult to sell Tempranillo because there's a lot of expensive Tempranillo and for some reason the alternative varieties get sort of judged on that whereas um, the the more mainstream varieties don't uh, um, so, for example, there's a lot of cheap Gab in the world, too, and there's a lot of cheap Merlot. Yeah. Uh, but nobody seems to mention that when you're tasting Cab and Merlot, but yeah. when they taste Tempranillo... It doesn't sully the reputation so yeah. much as... And I don't know why that is. I, I think because... Um, I, I don't know why that is. I, I think because the market for Tempranillo isn't, isn't large in BC, mm. and so if you want to send product over to this market from Spain you would decide to break in at the lower cost, you know, try to try yeah. to sell some wine based on cost rather than varietal because it's not well known. Whereas, you know, with the Cab Sauv, it's, it's, the, it's the icons that lead the brand. And, and so people think of them as, as, as higher priced varietals than Tempranillo, even though should matter only what maybe it depends matter. a bit on the age group as well right because i can relate to the idea that back in the day the wine international wines you would find on the shelf tempranillo spanish wines or um chianti italian wines they yeah. weren't <laughs> they weren't at the top they, end of the quality scale, right? <laughs> well they had a major throw, throw yourself back 25 30 years and yeah. we didn't have a great selection and and they had a major like perception problem to yeah. overcome. I'm yeah. surprised they have 
come this far because yeah, you're right with the like wicker basket, <laughs> yeah. um, candies and and the cheap candies and trying to reinvent the that image. The whole brand. And and now it has you know they, yeah, they they've done, you know it's not what you think of as the most expensive wine I guess, but it certainly has you know a, a wide range of of quality levels and prices. Well, yeah. Tempranillo, yeah, yeah. So people love it, right? And uh, so, and, and likewise, Chianti Classico. Yeah. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you about Tempranillo uh, because the classic, uh, old school anyway, uh, Rioja Tempranillo was um, was uh, typically aged in oak, in American oak. Do you guys use French oak or do you use American? We oak? use American oak. You do, huh? So you're yeah. trying to be a bit true to that. No, we, well, actually, it's it's it's. Unfortunately, it's a little bit more uh, just straight up economics. We just tasted it with oak of both the American and, and French varieties yeah. and even uh, Eastern European, some Hungarian. Yeah. And, and we couldn't discern a quality difference. Certainly, there's a taste difference. They do taste different. But then when you say, okay, well... In terms of the character of the wine. Yeah, is. like, is this better or is it just different? And, and we even sent it out to some of the Psalms and, uh, you know, Barb Phillip, who's a master of wine, tried it and, and her uh, husband, who's also a wine educator and, and, uh, and they disagreed. One of them s said, oh, you should try putting, uh, you know, French oak on this. And, and, and Ian Phillip was like, no, I like, you know, I like. So it, 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 it was a tie and we just were like, okay, well, you know, American oak is twice as, uh, is half as expensive as French oak, yeah, and we're ending up with an equal level of wine quality. So why spend more money to get to the same spot? Yeah, yeah. Um, I like, and it didn't hurt that I liked the American version better. Um, and the American version uses less oak to um, to sort of reach um, the the right balance. Yeah, in the wine, and and so. You're oaking the wine less. You get a little bit more of the expression of Tempranillo out in there, mm -hmm. and and it's costing you less. So it's it, it it would be a hard decision to use the French and kind of be like, okay, we're at the same quality level, but we just spent a bunch more money to get there. It just didn't seem to make much sense. Um, and then, yeah, I guess I could say like my my opinion of the flavor profile. Like I kind of like the, the the American oak has a brighter um, sort of baker spice components to it, um, and Tempranillo doesn't have a lot of fruit, so they they match well. Like the, the, those brighter notes, rather than you know Tempranillo has sort of like leather and you know mushroom and earthy characters and you know maybe some tobacco or something like that, but it's doesn't have a lot of, of um, you know, bright black fruit or, right. or cherry or anything. And then you're bringing in an oak that doesn't also have bright. It's sort of more of the same. And then, so I, I, I just like the American version better. Um, that being said, there's, there's, you know, the whole spectrum of American oak choices too. And you get you know some of the stuff that's coopered and aged for four years uh the staves and it's got a, like a more subtle oaking qualities to it or you can get something that's quite tannic or so um we choose we choose something that's sort of 
and, and in small quantities that, that doesn't change the wine that much. But that being said, it's one of our oakier wines. Uh, I'm going to have to ask you to do a Cocktails with Winemakers episode on <laughs> oak barrel aging and oak barrel character. It's, um, it's I, I don't know if you, I was telling um, Vita about my my side project, or my side series of podcasts, which is Cocktails with Winemakers, which is you know delving into very specific elements of winemaking. Not okay. in a hyper-technical way, but just so people who are interested in wine can, you know, get a sense of what happens during fermentation or what happens during yeah. barrel yeah. aging, right? And uh, the barrels I might are hit me up for one of those uh, episodes. They're cool because they they do change the wine considerably, um, and then tasting through all the barrels is 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 you're also dealing with something that you know each barrel is like I don't know like thirteen hundred bucks. It's 250 liters of wine, so you know you could figure out your price per bottle. And so, if you're not tasting your barrels carefully, you're kind of missing out. Like you're paying a lot for it, so you better make sure you're getting what you think you're paying for, whatever whatever that may be. Um, it's certainly nice to go through it and make sure um, that those characters are coming through. And you know, we've tasted a lot of the barrels, and and there's a lot of different character you can add to your wine with with the same with the same product, this being barrels, but just toasted differently or, you know, the stave wood aged differently. You can get a lot, you can spend a lot of time in that too, which is maybe not productive, you know. To, but one of my favorite things, um, we had a lot of restaurateurs come out and some of them end up here just when we're blending and and, be, um, and so we have Syrah to taste through and Syrah goes into dead of night and we generally use our better Syrah for dead of night and actually pretty much always and then we use you know second level of Syrah for our main Syrah then you know some of it we might throw a spice rack into other uh, other varieties hardly ever but anyway you could um, and so you taste through the barrels and specifically um, Syrah barrels because we're trying to get the best Syrah into here so you taste through all the barrels and sometimes you get a surprise like the four-year-old barrel might have some Syrah in it that tastes is, that tastes very nice for, for no reason because it should it you know the nicer stuff should be in the newer barrels yeah you know, that's the point of adding the barrels like at least the second year barrel should you know be toned down enough that it's giving the right yeah, nice or, character yeah or at least second or third like there should be sort of some point there like by the time you get to the fourth there's the not neutral much barrel yeah the fourth it's, year it's yeah it's, it's you just, don't expect it to have the nice character no, and sometimes it does, but with the restaurateurs when they're coming out, we were tasting like you know, through like forty barrels of Syrah, and they just love it, and, and it's it is very interesting, especially if you're on a barrel program that you're mixing barrels, like yeah. you're you're trying, you're, you're saying okay, let's bring in two from, I don't know, uh, Terenceau, and we'll bring in two from here, and then you're tasting them, and because there's significant differences, um, formulating that into an actual cohesive plan to make a good wine is another Blend. story. Yeah. yeah, that's a whole no, difference. To me, this is, it, it totally blows me away when, mm -hmm. when winemakers are tasting through dozens of barrels and saying, right. I like that one, I like that one, I like that one, I don't love so much like, but I think these two, three, four go together really well. I mean, that, that just blows me away. That's, the, those are the ones you, the, and sort of where the flavors are going, but you, you know, that's not a, you almost, yeah, it's it's sort of a, it's sort of a fun thing because it's, um, 
you sort of it's sort of like cooking and you kind of sometimes you know oh what this needs is you know a little cilantro and that would be perfect and then when you do it and it turns out you're like yeah I'm I'm awesome and then sometimes <laughs> you put it in and you're like no no it didn't need cilantro and now I got this dish with cilantro so it could be really rewarding and really cool um, and it, and and after you've tasted enough of them and, and you've tasted your vintage over and over and over again those become a lot easier than the first time where you're like oh let's throw some cilantro in it um, it's like you've done 15 vintages of Syrah and you've seen different barrels and you know what the tastes are and so you start to it start to become yeah. you know where you're like okay these two together are gonna that's gonna work and that's not gonna work and it's yeah. has nothing They're to do still with totally mysterious and well the mysterious to me oh yeah the one I get is uh, is base vintages of champagne yeah when that we were I've done many tastings I kind of like the idea of champagne and making champagne I, bubbles yeah so just yeah. you know uh, yeah. um, then I, I've done these but the tastings. base wine because it's it's acidic and it's it's tight and it like and then the winemakers saying like imagine okay you know and then we're gonna age this and then we're gonna have dosage and it's gonna be like this and we're gonna have and I'm like I can't imagine anything (laughs) you know yeah and I it it always perplexed me yeah it's just it's just like it's I just you know I imagine after maybe ten years in a cellar with somebody I'd be able to develop an understanding of what they're seeing. But it's it's, I certainly doesn't come natural. I just I taste them and I'm like I, I don't I don't get it. I don't see where this is going. I yeah. can't I can't, I can't see any difference in some of the wines. They're, it's you know, fifteen different acidic, you know, tight wines. So uh, we're gonna end up having to break this into two episodes. <laughs> talk sorry, talk. sorry. I was fantastic. gonna warn it's you fantastic. ahead of time that uh, <laughs> that you know, yeah. No, it's just, all. Uh, it's really good, uh, uh, and we've only touched on. We've sort of skipped around touching on these varietals. I think it's super fascinating, not only because it's interesting to hear about the varietals, but it's also interesting, you know, I think to hear how they translate to Canada. And I think maybe that's where I'd really like to take you for a bit, if you don't mind. Oh yeah, is sure. about making wine in Canada. So, you know, imagine that you're gonna have listeners to this podcast in the UK and the US and other places, and these are the people who think we. We're living in the frozen north, and we th- they think of ice wine. Right? Sorry, I don't mind saying that, right? And and so, I'm looking through the windows at your place here. We've got a 180 degree view of this uh, mountain, uh, dryish mountain country. This big lake stretching up and down, north to south, in front of us. Um, but uh, for for an, an yeah, we'll talk about exports maybe a little bit. But anyway, for an international clientele. How do you even begin to describe where you're making wines and why winemaking works so well here? Well, um, the one, the first thing that I think people don't understand about anyway, the south half, uh, half of this valley, pardon me, south half of the valley, um, is that it's an extension of the Sonoran Desert, which starts in Mexico and comes up through the U.S. And then it ends up, this is... Okay, cool. That was the first half of my conversation with Chris Tolley of Moon Cruiser Vineyards. And as you can tell, Chris is a great personality. He loves to talk about wine. There's a bunch of marvelous insights here into the wine world. And likewise, in the second installment, soon to be uploaded, you'll find even more from Chris. So come back for that. 
Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to head over to the website for lots of great content, including a recent article that I wrote about BC's cool climate winemaking region. Moon Cursor is featured in that uh, article, along with a bunch of other wineries that are leading the way in quality in, in, in the Okanagan Valley. So come on over to the website, www.thewinebeat.com. So long from me. See you soon. Take very good care of yourself. You can talk Bye. about your whiskey. You can talk about your beer. You're looking for the kind of talk. You ain't gonna find it here.